Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and this is not my cow. I ordered the chicken quesadilla. <laughs> uh, joining me is Liz. This is my cow. I sponsored them via my local animal welfare organization, and they sent me this plush doll as a thanks. Our book this month is Thud, the story that asks what really happens when we treat war like Jess. <laughs> the cover gave it right away that it was a watchbook, and I like the watchbooks. They're fun, and because I've definitely got my uh, known propensity for like mystery novels, I was excited to have another one of those. So I definitely had no idea what the title was in reference to, even though I think I maybe should have. What can you tell us about the trivia? Coming in at 108,000 words, Thud is the 34th Discworld novel and 7th in the Watch series. It was released in the United States on September 13th, 2005, three weeks before debuting in the UK, so that the book would be available during a signing tour Terry Pratchett was doing in America. The titular board game is based on the Tavel series of strategy games historically played in the Nordic and Celtic regions of Europe, and was actually designed by the mathematics teacher Trevor Truren in 2002 as a game inspired by the Discworld, and was integrated into the series in 2004 with Going Postal. The dwarf view of darkness as truth in the myth of Tak may be meant as an inversion of the allegory of the cave. The painting, The Battle of Coombe Valley, is a cyclorama, a popular painting trend of the 19th century while the Coombe Valley Codex book is a reference to the Da Vinci Code, and the dwarvish symbol for the long dark is reminiscent of the signage for the London Underground, which connects with an idea mentioned at the end of the story for an underground public transportation system. In 2006, Thud was nominated for both the SF Sight Readers Poll and the Locus Award. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts 10 and a half hours, with the abridged version read by Tony Robinson coming at 3 hours and 40 minutes. At time of recording, the story has not yet been adapted for stage or screen, although 2005 did see both a re-release of the board game and the publishing of a real-world version of the children's book, Where Is My Cow? Our story begins in the city of Ankh-Morpork, where once again the ancient animosity between trolls and dwarves threatens to escalate into open war. Commander Samuel Vimes, head of the Watch and Duke of the city-state, is particularly concerned about the dwarf demagogue Grag Hemcrusher, known proponent of violence towards trolls. However, Vimes also has to deal with two slightly more immediate issues. The inspector, A.E. Pessimal, who has been assigned to evaluate the financial state of the Watch, and Sally von Hapending, their first vampire recruit. It's funny coincidence running across an interview with the vampire reference in the same month as Anne Rice passing away. <laughs> well, at least she never tried to sue Terry Pratchett. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a coincidence. For how much attention that Sally gets at the start of the book, I thought she'd be a much more present player throughout it, but she does kind of disappoint. Uh, she does kind of disappear at about the three quarters mark. I mean, she more fades out, but like, yeah, she's not as big a deal as I would have thought. Yeah, and you know, uh, Vine's dislike for vampires has been like a long-running thing in the series, so it feels a little strange that not more of the plot was devoted to him dealing with her suddenly being a part of 
the watch. Maybe if somebody needed to like keep a closer eye on her so we were more aware of what she was doing. Because once she gets uh, stood down pretty early onto the book, she doesn't necessarily have a whole lot to do for a long while. She doesn't disappear, really. She is, mm-hmm. like, involved in the climax and, like, the re- post-climax reveals and everything, but mm-hmm. I also wish that she was a bigger part of the story. Yeah, she's just not very forward. I mean, she is forward <laughs> in certain respects. Yeah, unfortunately not forward enough in the plot of the book. <laughs> Elsewhere in the city, Sergeant Fred Colin and Corporal Nobby Nobbs have been called in to the Royal Art Museum, where a painting has been stolen, specifically one depicting a battle in Coombe Valley, which I'm sure is unconnected. <laughs> yeah, nothing suspicious there. Uh, there are two extended bits in here. One involves Colin and Nobby discussing possible solutions to the mystery of how the work was stolen, which I'm all but positive are references to classic detective stories. Mm-hmm. It does have a very Sherlock and Watson vibe to it. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know what you're referencing, but this is written with the cadence of a reference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other major thing that gets focused on in this section is nudity, specifically the difference between high art and pure titillation. Relevant, since Nobby has started a romantic relationship with a pole dancer named Tawny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good question. Who was it who said, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it? Oh, it was some, like, U.S. lawmaker or judge or something. Yeah. It's not really a useful thing, right? Unless you want to set yourself up as, like, the arbiter of smut. Yeah. Yeah, the lack of the definition is the strength of it to those people. Yeah. Back with Sam Vimes, he is shocked to learn that Greg Hamcrusher is dead. After some difficulty and a few barely veiled threats, he's able to get a meeting with several of the dwarf community leaders, who allow an investigation. To this end, he assigns Captain Carrot Ironfounderson, a human who was raised by dwarfs, along with Carrot's girlfriend, Sergeant Anke von Überwald, who has been put in charge of Sally's training. It's nice to have Anke back in, like, a major part, considering how little we've seen of her in some of the recent Watch books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for real. <laughs> At the same time, it is kind of a shame that most of what she gets to work with here is, like, her animosity with Sally. Now, the impression I got from the narration is that Angua is mostly jealous because Sally seems so effortlessly beautiful and might threaten Angua's relationship with Carrot. A reaction she's justifying and is exacerbated by the historic hostility between vampires and werewolves. Mm-hmm. On some level, this is about recontextualizing the larger conflict between trolls and dwarves, illustrating how both situations are ultimately fueled by pettiness. On the other hand, it's also a tired romance trope of two hot ladies fighting over a relatively bland hero. Yeah, it's the thing they hate in fiction where there's two female characters, so they obviously have to dislike each other. And it's just like, why? Like, I get if they have some conflict and animosity because like okay the va- uh, vampires and werewolves don't really like each other and that's fine I think that's an interesting point of conflict for them but the fact that so much of how that tension gets played out is them kind of fighting over carrot feels very silly yeah maybe Terpatrick felt that it was due because like Angua and Cheery didn't have any sort of animosity 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least it's not the only thing that he's done with like two female characters sharing a plot. Yeah, I'm glad that as much as I dislike it, it's kept pretty brief in the book. Like the entire book is not slogging over this conflict. <laughs> yeah. It has like a couple moments where it's like, okay, whatever, let's get through this. And then it kind of goes away. As the investigation continues, Vimes is invited to a meeting with Chrysophrase, the troll kingpin who insists that Hamcrusher was not killed by any troll. Vimes also asks about a name that's been showing up around the city, Mr. Shine. But Chrysophrase dismisses that as a legend. I really like during the scene, um, Chrysophrase offers Vimes a like fur jacket because they're meeting in the Pork Futures warehouse, which is refrigerated it's very cold um and it seems like this very like thoughtful gesture that becomes very obvious at the end of the scene that it's a bit of like a test on vimes's character it's a very like subtle thing and it's really brief but it adds a lot of depth to chrysophrase i think yeah absolutely for as little development as chrysophrase has gotten over the course of the series he's Mm -hmm. like one of the characters who's been around the longest like Mm-hmm. He was present at least since soul music, if not like much earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And especially considering the place that he reportedly has in the troll community, getting to know what he thinks and how he's treating people in positions of authority like Vimes is like an interesting thing to explore. Following the meeting, Vimes realizes that it's nearly six o'clock. What follows is a mad dash across the city, including commandeering a cart, going over a drawbridge, and through a passing ship. Also, Vimes can reach the most important part of his day, reading a bedtime story to his son, young Sam. Very cute. (laughs) And also a very good action scene. (laughs) Yeah. We saw that Vimes and his wife, Lady Sybil Remkin, had young Sam in the last watchbook, Nightwatch. What I find the most interesting about how young Sam contributes to this story is the way that Vimes is determined to be a good dad despite his busy job, and also how paranoid it makes him to have so many good things in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, Vimes is a character that's fairly well, like, set in who he is and where he is in life, and so we're not necessarily having to worry about, like, oh, is he gonna lose his job? Is he gonna, like, make a big mistake on a case? But his relationship with Sybil and young Sam, like we don't necessarily know how he's going to handle them because we haven't seen as much of those relationships. And while we can trust that he's going to do his best, like people fail at that sometimes. And it's an interesting point of uh, conflict for his character. Yeah. Because we've also seen that like throughout the watch series, a point of failure in his relationship with Lady Sybil is that he doesn't always make enough time for her because he has such a big and busy job. There's like, so we see that he's more making time for his son, but that definitely makes sense. Like, Sybil is a like full adult person with her own stuff going on, and young Sam is a baby. Yeah, if Vimes doesn't offer his time to young Sam, like at this point, like. Young Sam is never going to get that. And Sybil's a very competent woman who is an adult on her own for a long time before she met Vines, you know? She's good at being by herself, but that's not fair to Young Sam. It's interesting that Vimes has this reaction of just absolute fear because mm-hmm. of how much he loves his kid. Mm-hmm. 
because it definitely shows that he is a a decent man who has gone through some stuff in his life. Yeah, like, I don't want to go into this too deeply, but my family's had a history of some not super healthy relationships. And like, I'm talking generations of this stuff. Growing up, my parents always acted a very specific way about certain things because they didn't necessarily want to be like their parents. And I didn't really understand that until I was older, but I very much understand where they were coming from, the like anxieties they had about not doing better and how that affected so much about the decisions they made while raising me and my siblings. That's heavy stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And like, I love my parents. I did think they did a great job with all of us, but it's also like I can now see some of where that baggage is and I, I get why they made some of the decisions and choices they did, even though I didn't at the time. The anniversary of Coombe Valley draws near, and the Watch are expecting a riot. Vimes is making preparations for the conflict when he's interrupted by A.E. Pessimal, bearing a long list of ill-informed questions about the Watch's operation. Vimes decides to bring Mr. Pessimal with him to the front lines, intending to simply scare the clerk before sending him back to safety, but Pessimal refuses to abandon his post. <laughs> and you're talking about Sally kind of vanishing from the story. Pessimal absolutely just disappears. Oh, yeah. He's kind of like as much of an arc as he gets. You know, he kind of reaches the end of that. And then he's never important again. <laughs> yeah. It's like his entire arc is sort of within the first half of this story. <laughs> yeah. And granted, we don't necessarily get to see a whole lot of the aftermath of you know, the events in the book, which is where I think he probably would best pop up next because he's going to have to work through some stuff after that. Um, But it still feels weird that he's this kind of like thread at the start of the book. And then, you know, it's just gone. While most of the Watch are facing down two mobs of trolls and dwarfs, Sergeant Angua is putting her nose to work investigating the murder. The trail leads her into the network of blocked basements and clogged sewers that make up Ankh Morpork's underground, where she finds none other than Sally, also investigating. Together, they find the bodies of four dwarfs, one of whom has scrawled a sinister-looking rune onto the wall. Sally and Angua have a confrontation here that's almost pure titillation, saved at least in part by the lack of detailed description and the way the characters make clear their exasperation with the tropes at play. I won't say I like it, but I do acknowledge how another writer might have used the lampshading as a shield to just indulge in pure cheesecake. Yeah, I was like kind of a little caught off guard with this. And there are a couple points in this book where I was like, this feels very different than a lot of the Discworld books have. And I just like didn't really know what to do with it. I will say it is one of the most iconic Discworld moments. (laughs) It's definitely like one of the scenes that is like, very stuck in my memory now. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to just try reading it out for the sake of anyone who hasn't read the book? (laughs) We can do that. And would you like to be Sally or Angua? I don't know. Do you have a preference? (laughs) Uh, How about I'll be Sally? Okay, cool. Hold it. Sally thrust both hands in front of her in a gesture of peace. There is something we'd better sort before this goes any further. Yeah. Yes. We're both wearing nothing, we're standing in what you may have noticed is increasingly turning into mud, and we're squaring up to fight. Okay, but there's something missing, yes? And that is? 
a paying audience, we could make a fortune, Sally winked. Or we could do the job we came here to do. <laughs> also, maybe it's just me. Sally is flirting with Angua there, isn't she? Oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> there's definitely, like, something going on in there. I mean, Sally even has, like, uh, the bisexual bob. <laughs> True. <laughs> As somebody with a haircut, I cannot deny. So, the next morning, we learned that while the trolls and dwarves had been preparing for the riot by drinking, the watch actually spiked their supplies of beer, and now most of the potential troublemakers are just sleeping it off. The only two policemen who got hurt, when a troll attacked the commander and Pessel tried to retaliate, but as luck would have it, that troll had actually stumbled into the lair of the dwarf community leaders and witnessed Hamcrusher's murder at the hands of another dwarf. Um, the way I'm describing this part of the plot is not really doing credit to how well it's woven into the narrative. It's only in hindsight that this feels kind of like a cheap coincidence. Less so when you find out that the Watch getting their hands on this troll was engineered by Mr. Shine as a way to tell Vimes where he can find him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a little unsure of what to make of the troll who stumbled into everything. His name yeah. is Brick. I wasn't really sure what to like make of him when the book started because I was like, well, obviously this is important, but I'm not sure how it can be important. And it's just he pops up every once in a while so we can keep track of where he is. And then he kind of just like perfectly slides into the place where he needs to be to get the plot to move forward. Good writing. <laughs> Back with Angua and Sally, they've made it through the disgusting underbelly of the city and ended up underneath the bar where Tawny dances, as Colin and Nobby are visiting her at work. The two women borrow clothing and make their way back to the watch house to report on what they found in the Undercity. You know, I think I would have liked this part a little bit better if Angua and Sally had just gotten, like, overcoats or something that, like, the mm -hmm. dancers, like, wear when they're going home from work. Yeah, especially considering places like bars and clubs, regardless of the kind, do you have a tendency to like collect items of clothing, especially jackets, as people just forget them and go home without them? Yeah, it's like I think that would have been like an actual joke, mm -hmm. right? The the reader would have expected them to like go home in like stripper outfits, mm -hmm. but like they actually just have normal clothing. Yeah, <laughs> something entirely reasonable. But no, they just go back to the watch house in, like, sexy pole dancer getup. Yeah. Yeah, which is one of the parts of this book that feels uh, a little, like, I don't I don't even know the word, like, leery. A voyeuristic, maybe? Yeah. I, it's just, I'm just like, I don't, okay, like, this is, like, a, a funny scenario, like, in general. But it feels like it's really catching me off guard in a Discworld book. Yeah, it's just, like, kind of contrived and mm -hmm. doesn't really gel with, like, one of the first female characters we ever meet in the series, the narration has like an extended bit about how she's dressed practically and mm -hmm. and like is mocking like bikini armor and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we get this little bit of like fan service. Yeah, but like it's not really detailed enough to be just like just fan service, and it's not mm -hmm. played with enough to be interesting parody. Yeah. Mm hmm. Again, like, while you're reading the story, it just sort of goes past quick enough that it doesn't really matter, at least to me. But, like, yeah. when I'm thinking about it, it's just like, ah, that that's, didn't sit right. Yeah, it just kind of, like, sticks out in my brain as a weird part of the book. Yeah. Vimes goes to find Mr. Shine, who it turns out is living in the back room of a geology shop. 
The owners of the building are Miss Pickles and Miss Pointer, two people sharing one body. I, I wouldn't necessarily call this good plural representation, but the matter-of-factness with which it's presented and accepted is probably a relief for those who are tired of seeing their situation depicted like Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like really brief, but it's just kind of treated as like a thing that just exists and it catches Vimes off guard a little bit, but there's like no further discussion about it that makes it feel like, I don't know, that it's under examination, you know? Mm-hmm. Or not like mocked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like it just is and he's got other things to do, so we'll move on. So it turns out that Mr. Shine is a special kind of troll entirely formed of diamond. Amazingly, no girl's best friend reference here. <laughs> yeah, real missed opportunity. So he explains to Vimes that his very existence is a rallying call for the troll t- tribes to unite and go to war with the dwarves, but he'd much rather both races learn to coexist. He illustrates some of his thoughts through the game of Thud, and how to master it, you need to really understand both the trolls and the dwarves, mm-hmm. who are the two armies within the game. Yeah. I think the, the I think the thing that's really refreshing about this book is that there are a lot of people who are wanting peace, who don't want this conflict between the dwarves and the trolls to like play out. And like powerful people, like the leaders of those groups. And like it makes it seem like it's not a thing Vines or Ankh-Morpork or Vetinari is pushing for. It's a thing that they want and is a sign of how the world has changed so much in recent history for them. Interspersed throughout the story so far, we've been getting snippets of narration from an unnamed entity wandering an abandoned city in the rain, growing frustrated with something. My first thoughts with this were, I was just getting like big Hiver vibes from it. Yeah, from um, a hat full of sky for those keeping score at home. Yeah, and I was just wondering like, okay, well... It feels like a weird choice to bring that enemy back, but just like plop it into another story. So I'm wondering how this is like playing with a similar kind of idea of this unseen, but like primordial, like evil, Mm -hmm. but it's not the Hiver. And I think ultimately it plays out really interestingly and feels very distinct. Like it's a similar thing, but it's mm-hmm. used in like a very different result on the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just feel like they're beings with similar origins, but they're not the same kind of creature at all. That night, just after Vimes has finished reading the story to young Sam, a number of dwarfs break into his home to attack him and his family. Two of them are dispatched by the butler, Willikins, but the third runs first into young Sam's bedroom and then outside towards Sybil's dragon kennels. Vimes is driven into a monstrous rage, but luckily nobody is harmed except the assassin, who made the crucial mistake of using a flamethrower. Not only was Sybil protected by her normal safety gear, but all of the dragons took the attack as a challenge and roast the dwarf alive. Yeah, this seems like hardcore. Yeah. Also kind of interesting, because like swamp dragons as a thing just sort of pop back into the focus for like just a scene yeah mm -hmm. it feels very like appropriate for sybil where she is the dragons are and we don't get to see that a lot but sometimes it works out you know it hasn't really been a focus of the stories that sybil is like some people are horse ladies 
Sybil's a dragon lady. <laughs> I was also kind of worried with this scene, like, of it getting into kind of, like, maybe fridging territory, like, mm. that the story would fridge Sybil, which for the uninitiated, fridging a character in a book, it's often used in reference to um, the wives of the male main character, where they are killed as motivation for the main character. And when... Sybil is like first hit with the flamethrower I was like oh no this is it and then she's like totally fine because she's wearing dragon protective gear so she's essentially invincible to fire yeah I was like okay whew, I'm cool Vimes, Sybil, and young Sam all move into the watch headquarters temporarily where Vimes meets with two of the dwarf community leaders Bashful Bashfulson and Greg Helmclever who it turns out is part of Mr. Shine's Thud Club. Helmclever explains much of what has been happening. The ultra-conservative members of dwarfdom have been trying to reassert traditional values by inciting hostility with the trolls, and they were digging through Ankh-Morpork to find an ancient piece of technology, a cube as they call it, which can record and play back what it hears. This cube has recorded secrets of the battle at Coombe Valley, and so the demagogues have taken both it and the painting from the museum and fled the city. The cubes and devices are something that really come out of left field for me. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a throwaway line about them being ancient relics, unearthed from places all over the world. Uh, it's not a, that this is a weird thing for Discworld to have. Ancient machinery from an advanced civilization is totally the type of trope space that I would expect these novels to play with. But what's odd is the way that they're presented is just something that exists and the narration doesn't give us any jokes or real explanation about them. Yeah, like for as interesting an idea as something like that is, like these objects that predate your concept of your civilization and how you can use those as part of your civilization. It's just like not really explored other than they exist we don't really know how they work they're very powerful and very rare and then the book is like okay we're moving on now bashfulson also tells vimes about the symbol that angua and sally found with the dwarf corpses it represents the summoning dark a particular kind of darkness that possesses people and drives them to righteous fury indeed during that very conversation the fear of the summoning dark kills helm clever the idea of the runes like the summoning dark as a sort of power that exists outside of and within all of the dwarves is really interesting to me like i think there's so many possibilities for how to use something like that and especially because there's so many different variations of what the dark means to the dwarves like i think there's like endless possibilities on how that could affect them you know if you wanted to just dive in with like a dwarf only discworld book on this yeah it would be interesting and the scene is like the book's been talking about these runes the entire time essentially but it's kind of treated as like oh it's just like a thing it's just a sign it's nothing like all that meaningful to anybody who's not a dwarf and then helm clever dies here and the power of that thing becomes very, very present and it makes it clear how much of a threat this actually is. Meanwhile, as thanks for helping them out earlier, 
Angela, Sally, and Cheery Littlebottom, the watch's forensics expert and one of the first dwarfs to present as openly female, have taken Tawny out for drinks. There they realize that the woman has basically no clue about most things, mostly sexuality, and is a victim of what they call jerk syndrome, where she is so pretty that no man until Nubby Nubs has been confident enough to ask her out. I like Tawny. I kind of get what she's doing in this book because she's simultaneously kind of a foil to Angua's and Sally's conflict because she's just so not bothered by the like girl girl tension and also like uh Colin's and Nobby's whole thing about what is art versus titillation and to her you know and to Nobby what she does as a dancer is art and it can also be a little titillating but you know they're not exclusive and also like I do appreciate that Nobby like absolutely respects the craft of pole dancing right Mm mm-hmm because like, it is, my understanding is that it is like a seriously difficult thing to do and mm-hmm. people just sort of dismiss it. Yeah, like because it's sexy, it can't be valuable in other ways. Yeah, and I think the book does a fairly decent job at being sympathetic to that kind of work. Like there's obviously some jokes about it because this is a comedy book and there are jokes about a lot of things. But it doesn't necessarily try to put dancing down as a job or that anybody's bad or worse off for being for doing that job back at watch headquarters vimes is questioning the curator of the royal art museum about the stolen painting and when he explains that it was meant to be displayed in a circular room vimes realizes that it's depicting the view from one specific spot in the valley presumably where there is an important secret about the original battle Luckily for them, the painting used to belong to the Rankin family, and Lady Sybil once made a one-fifth scale copy of the work as a school project, which she still has in a box in the attic. This is another instance of a major plot development being sort of dropped into the protagonist's lap through sheer luck. Yeah. Actually, this is something that just occurred to me now. Mm -hmm. Sally also mentions that painting belonging to her family. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. What if Sally had been actually just, like, a, a relative of Sybil's? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> She's just, like, her second aunt or something. Yeah. Actually, Sally's <laughs> only, like, 50, right? I just looked at her wiki. She's 51. Yeah. So. Maybe Sally is just, like, Sybil's cousin or even, like, a sister or something. Just, like, if <laughs> her being an in-law would be an interesting thing for her and Vimes to, like, have some sort of plot line about. Yeah, especially since, like, Sybil is so welcoming to, like, just about anyone. She's very, like, people-forward that I think <laughs> if it was like, oh, here's my cousin Sally. She's also a vampire. Deal with that, Vimes. <laughs> like, that'd be very funny because then Vimes is suddenly having to deal with, I don't like vampires, but Sybil likes you, so I guess I'll figure out how to deal Vimes heads out for Coombe Valley, and despite his protests, Sybil comes along with young Sam in tow. To be able to catch up with the dwarfs, Vimes calls in the wizards from Unseen University, who basically turn his carriage (laughs) jet-powered. 
I completely forgot that this happened between the first time I read this story and now. Yeah, I mean, it goes by really fast. And, like, doesn't really connect to anything. Yeah, it just is one of those things where it's like, okay, these characters need to get here quickly. The, like, in-between is not all that important. But because we're living in, like, an old-timey fantasy world, how would those characters get there quickly? That's kind of the entire point, I think. And I think to... Uh, imply more than say a pun about horsepower. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, Vimes, Sybil, Young Sam, uh, Bashfulsen, and a contingent of watch officers, including Angua and Sally, all arrive at Coombe Valley. There, they use Sybil's recreation of the painting to try and find the exact spot where the secret is kept. And Vimes eventually stumbles upon a large pit where, as he investigates, something compels him to let go of the rope, and he falls into an underground river. I think this entire bit with the painting being a like, circular map, and them wandering around uh, in Coombe Valley trying to find the spot, is such like an interesting way to handle that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, these are kind of mystery novels. And so putting the clues together is a big part of how they work. And that feels just a really, that feels like a really innovative way for being like, oh, it's not just a painting that's stolen that might have some valuable information in it. It's that that valuable information is a fundamental part of how this painting is supposed to exist. Also like this, the bit with Vimes letting go of the rope. I was very, very worried about where the book would go next because I was like, <laughs> oh no, like... And maybe I'm a claustrophobic person. The idea of caves like really freaks me out. So the idea of just like being in a cave underground with no idea where you are. It's like my worst nightmare. Oh no. <laughs> I take it you do not play much Minecraft then. <laughs> I do, but I play it very, very nervously whenever I have to go underground. <laughs> That's fair. Especially after the new update. It's only made it worse. <laughs> Vimes eventually regains consciousness deep below Coombe Valley, where he realizes that it's almost six o'clock. As he searches through the caves for an exit, he comes across a regiment of dwarfs working for those demagogues, working to destroy a number of fossilized corpses of both dwarfs and trolls. The conservative dwarfs attack, and Vimes is consumed with rage, but his first and greatest priority is making sure that his son gets his bedtime story. So he recites the book from memory loud enough that young Sam can hear him even from above ground, all while fighting off a gang of dwarfs armed with axes and flamethrowers. <laughs> One, the scene is very silly, but also like for me, this is really the emotional climax of the book. Oh, it's absolutely the, the climax of the story. Yeah, which feels very, very silly that the fact that the ultimate ending of this book is this grown man screaming a children's book at these very, very confused dwarves. <laughs> as many criticisms as we've raised of the story, this rules. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is a great scene. <laughs> Soon enough, Vimes comes face to face with the demagogues who were behind the whole thing, but stops himself from killing them. It turns out that he was made the host for the Summoning Dark, and it's amplifying his desire for vengeance and fury. But Samuel Vimes has gotten so good at preventing himself from committing extrajudicial murder that not even a quasi-demonic spirit of vengeance can compel him to do it. That is pretty cool, and it is very like pretty much the main distinction between this and that Hiver plot we were talking about. Yeah, 
I, I think like this scene really works both like environmentally like scenically but I also think it's like a really good representation of you know a big part of what Vines's struggle has been is doing the right thing and especially as far as being a person of the watch like doing his job good and hurting people like that is not part of being a good a good cop to him yeah so like just reaffirming that especially because throughout this book i do think his like rage either his own personal rage or the rage that the summoning dark fills him with are very very present like throughout the book it just seems to build as the book goes on though Shortly thereafter, the heads of state for the trolls and dwarfs arrive, and the cube is retrieved. It turns out to be a recording from the ancient kings of the two races from back during the original Battle of Coombe Valley, and reveals that they had actually come to sign a peace treaty. The conservative dwarves had discovered this, but attempted to destroy the truth rather than let go of their ancient hatred for trolls. Which, it's made clear in this story, is like the worst thing that a dwarf can do is like destroy words yeah yeah and especially like their own history like that is an unimaginable crime to them but i think that that really illustrates how discworld as a whole and terry pratchett as an author really understand that things like racism are primarily fueled by those in power trying to maintain that control over people rather Mm -hmm. than like just individual actions yeah And especially so that people in power will manipulate the facts of history in order to benefit their argument. Absolutely. Thus, over the following few days, peace between the two races is finally ratified, in the cave where those ancient kings still sit frozen in the middle of their last game of thud. Sally is revealed to have actually been a spy for the low king of dwarves, but since the king and Vimes are friends, that hardly matters, and Angua is willing to accept her. Nobby reveals to Sergeant Colin that he's planning to just friends Tawny, since she's bad at cooking. <laughs> and meanwhile, Samuel Vimes continues to do his most important job every night at six o'clock. So that was Thud. What did you think? I really liked it. I mean, like, despite my grievances with the book, I do think it's a fun little story. At the beginning, I was getting like major Agatha Christie vibes <laughs> with the, the mystery for whatever reason. Yeah. And plot uh, Vimes is plotline with young sam and trying to be a good dad and being there at six o'clock for story time it feels like a very sweet and important moment for his character and i really dig it now i think uh a criticism that we've put on previous discworld books might actually still hold true here mm-hmm. like this story does kind of feel like a first draft mm-hmm. but it is a first draft from an exceptionally skilled writer Oh, yeah. I think a lot of this book is very fun. There are some really great action scenes. Like, there's some good emotional beats. It just feels like you could use a little trimming here and there. Yeah, like, certain things should have either been, like, removed and put into their own thing or mm-hmm. expanded and, like, interwoven with the rest of the main plot. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like, pretty much everything gets dropped in favor of that big climax where Vimes is wandering the caves, like, fighting dwarves and shouting, where's my cow? Yeah, and I think that's a great moment, but it does make it all the other stuff that's not suddenly relevant feel a little, a little meh. Stepping back a little bit from that, Coombe Valley has been referenced here and there throughout the series since at least Men at Arms, so it's nice to actually explore it and like, find out more stuff. Yeah, it's 
interesting with long running series like this where a thing is very clearly just mentioned offhandedly early on because it's like well we want to flesh out the world a little bit and you know it can't all just be these characters in this one city but then you know the story gets bigger and you have more and more books and you need more and more places to go and things to happen so those places like come to the forefront and as a writer I like seeing how those things evolve because it feels very natural to be like okay I need a place to go I need a place to do this and I did mention that thing like four books ago so let's just pull that into this hell yeah I always do enjoy that feeling of discovering the story that you're ostensibly creating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's like, I've had this piece of the puzzle for like 10 years, and now I finally have the place where it belongs. <laughs> uh, there's a brief exchange where Carrot basically suggests racially segregating police officers and patrol routes, but Vimes realizes how that would create more long-term problems than anything. Yeah. There's a couple things with Carrot in this book that feel just a little weird. How so? I don't, I don't know. It just be, kind of feels like maybe he's just a little out of touch with things. Hmm. And I think this is definitely the like worst offender of that. <laughs> yeah, but I think it also does indicate how Carrot should not be like the absolute authority of like Ankh-Morpork, right? Because mm-hmm. he's trying to go for just like the solution that makes intuitive sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because despite like how charismatic and usually thoughtful Carrot is, that sometimes he's just, like, not really seeing the problem. Yeah. And I think also just, like, the narrative demanded that we get a way to illustrate the need for uh, more social reform rather than just, like, mm-hmm. mitigation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Or one could also argue that Carrot suggested that specifically to get Vimes thinking about that as a thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, to get him to push back against it and think deeper about race yeah being like i can't come up with the answer but i can set you up to find the answer and like that might be just like a stretch it's difficult to say because of the way that carrot's thought process has been sort of obscured to us as the reader yeah yeah i think that's totally fair (laughs) uh one thing we brushed past is that rascal the painter of the battle of coombe valley believed that he was slash was being pursued by a chicken and how that gag tied into the main plot because the dwarfish word to play back the recording from the cube sounds like a chicken noise. <laughs> I, I also find that interesting as an allegory for the summoning dark, since it too exists in this nebulous space between being an external force and a part of its host. The way that something that's not entirely rational, but like is motivating, can be both destructive and generative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially this idea of like something that has power because of, because of our belief in it. Absolutely. But that's like a major thing throughout the Discworld. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just this is a very like personified not the word, but... Codified? Yeah, like it just it gives a shape to this thing. Yeah. Speaking of shapes, there's also a thing where the summoning dark symbol keeps forming as a result of vines just like absentmindedly putting things in different spots or knocking objects over, which kind of ties into how in the Where's My Cow book, the pictures are of, of animals arranged and like contrived into such a way as to resemble the silhouette of a cow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is very funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like when different layers of the plot are sort of woven in together. (laughs) Yeah. And especially something like this where, you know, like the ending of the book is pretty serious. Like, we know, we know that the characters are facing some real danger. 
but the idea that a big part of the plot it has been lifted out of the techniques of a children's book very good. <laughs> and also just like the summoning dark and like just the runes as like a big thing i do kind of appreciate that it's clarified that the dwarfs believe that the world was written right Mm-hmm. And on a meta level, they're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, they hit the nail on the head with that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how that compares to how when we actually saw the world get made back in Eric. Yeah. Well, we didn't really see much of the mm-hmm. actual process, so who knows? Yeah, we're getting like a montage of it there. <laughs> I think going back to the earlier stuff we were talking about, I think the reason why I we like weren't satisfied with a lot of the elements that are put in is because there's... This basically is a, like, Sam Vimes story that gets a lot of extra stuff added onto it. Mm-hmm. Like, most of which is in service of giving the ensemble cast stuff to do. Yeah. Like, I think probably the biggest one after Angua is actually Sergeant Detritus, the, one of the troll officers, who basically adopts Brick, makes him his apprentice slash son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A single line confirms that Detritus and, and Ruby, whom we met back in Moving Pictures... Like, they're still together. Like, easy to miss, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it does kind of feel like we need these people to functionally do something within the plot. So for every book, I like to try and condense the message down into a thesis statement. This time, I'd say that it's about recognizing and resisting the impact that narrative has on us at a societal level. That when we try to reduce people to game pieces capable only of the specific actions built into the rules, everyone loses some capacity for the best part of being a sapient being, which is the ability to grow beyond your supposed limits. Yeah, I think that's, like, spot on. That applies to a lot of different levels of the story, right? Because Mm -hmm. the dwarf demagogues are basically trying to, how would you put it, just, like, remove an alternate win condition from the game so that it only goes, (laughs) it can only play out certain ways. Yeah. They want things to be a certain way that agrees with their worldview. So they'll try to change the rules and cheat in order to make it work, regardless of how that affects anybody else. Absolutely. Also, everyone learns to appreciate the ways in which others can surprise them a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that just about does it for us, for Thud. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on various social medias or sh- just sharing this with your friends. You can find us on all the different places like uh, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. I usually share stuff on YouTube and Reddit. And it is not a, uh, at time of recording, but it will be live by the time this episode is released. We did a little thing with the Pratt Chat podcast, so check them out. Yeah. It will have gone up on the 25th. So we'll probably also have talked about it on like Twitter and things. Yeah, it's a fun little snippet. Oh, and if you want to support the show, please consider signing up to support us on Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to the show notes, previews of each episode, and you're entered to be the randomly selected person who gets shouted out at the end of each episode. This time we're giving a salute to Carol. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, thanks, Carol. And of course, we like to wrap up each episode with a reading of the fan vote for their favorite footnote. Vimes had never got on with any game more complex than darts. Chess, in particular, had always annoyed him. It was the dumb way the pawns went off and slaughtered their fellow pawns, while the kings lounged about doing nothing that always got to him. If only the pawns, united, maybe talked the rooks around, the whole board could have been a republic in about a dozen moves. 
Next month, we'll be taking a look at Wintersmith. Until then, the turtle, the turtle moves. moves.